You know, I got to say, I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of gun rights, but frankly, I am ashamed of the gun rights advocates who were protesting in Richmond yesterday. Um, I am uh, just embarrassed by them. I mean, think about it. The media had been rooting so hard for there to be violence during this rally. Uh, Democrats were pushing for it. The governor of, of Virginia was really pushing for it. Declared a state of emergency ahead of time. And then the rally happens, and there's no violence at all. No violence. You people at the rally, if you went to the rally, you really thought it was it was polite to embarrass the media and Democrats by being peaceful and, and just having a normal rally and then going home? I think it's, it's pretty tacky, I have to say. It's um, almost as tacky as the time when, when nobody shot up a screening of the Joker, as, as the media had obviously been hoping for. I mean, you couldn't have at least burned a car or, you know, shot out a window or something, maybe attacked somebody with a crowbar, you know, the kind of stuff that Antifa does. Of course, when Antifa does it, the media never notices, but if you had done it, the media would have loved that. It'd be the only thing they talked about for the next three weeks. Uh, and you took that opportunity away from them. They, they banked so much on it. And then you just, you, you, I, I don't know. I found it rude. I just find it rude. Maybe I was raised differently. I was raised, what my parents always told me is, if somebody has a negative opinion of you, don't embarrass them by refusing to live down to it. And, uh, you know, but that's an old-fashioned way of, of, of being raised. I guess it's just, it's just kids aren't raised that way anymore. And it's really sad. Um, just had to get that off my chest. Anyway, yes, the gun rights rally did happen in Richmond yesterday in response to the gun control measures by Democrats in the state. And it was a peaceful event. Um, one where not only was it peaceful, actually, but they... But they they cleaned up after themselves, which is another thing that oftentimes, oftentimes at, at left-wing protests, uh, little things like cleaning up after yourself doesn't, that they, maybe they, they don't focus quite as much on that. Um, but cleaned up after themselves and, and, and went home and, uh, and that was it. And it was indeed very frustrating for the media. And I want to talk about that and about what, um, also what I think is an extremely significant political scandal attached to this or related to it. And we're going to get to all that. But first, a word from Tommy Johns. You know, for me, the most important thing when it comes to clothing, really when it comes to any kind of clothing, is comfort. Okay? Because I'm the one that's got to be wearing the clothes all day. I'm not going to be looking at the clothes most of the day. I'm going to be wearing it. And so for me, I want to make sure, first and foremost, that it's comfortable. And this is doubly true when it comes to uh, what you wear or what you wear over or, or under the, the outer layer, your underwear. That's, um, I think comfort's even more important there. When it comes to comfort down below, there's underwear and then there's Tommy John, the revolutionary clothing brand that's redefined comfort for Americans everywhere, including me. The people at Tommy John were nice enough to, uh, you know, they were say, send me a few samples of, of their products. And um, I especially appreciate the undershirt, which, I'm, which I happen to be wearing right now. It's breathable. Um, it's a great fit, and here's what I like is that it doesn't get all stretched out in the wash and out of shape and mangled. Unlike every other undershirt I've ever, I've ever owned, uh, this one is, uh, you know, maintains that shape and that great fit no matter how many times you wash it. And you should wash it, by the way, as, um, as often as you wear it, just so you know. Tommy John focuses on the three Fs, fabric, fit, and function. Tommy John obsesses over every little detail and stitch by using proprietary fabrics that perform like nothing you've ever worn before. And when you wear it, you could tell that they obsess over all those details because you could tell that this is that a lot of effort and time has been put into um, creating what you're wearing. 
As a result, Tommy John's men's and women's underwear sports, um, a, a no wedgie guarantee, comfortable. Uh, there's a stay put waistbands and a range of fabrics that are luxuriously soft, feather light, moisture wicking, breathable, and designed to move with you, not against you. So you want your underwear to work with you, in other words. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you could get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear, or it's, uh, or it's free. That's the guarantee. If you prefer to shop in stores, you can find them in over 1,200 retail locations across the country, including Nordstrom stores nationwide. Um, once you go Tommy John, you won't go back. Try it, and you'll see that I'm right. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash Walsh for 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash Walsh for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash Walsh. All right, so the gun rights rally happened yesterday. Huge turnout. Um, but not much to say about the rally itself. It went off without a hitch. You know, there was, there was a bunch of people there. Yes, they were carrying weapons. No, it didn't devolve into violence. These were lawful gun owners, responsible gun owners, and, and they're perfectly capable, it turns out, of, uh, of, of coming together and, um, and uh, assembling without randomly shooting people. You know, if, if, if you didn't know, that's, uh, that they, they are capable of that. So they, they made their point, they made their voice heard, and, and then they went home. I think the notable stuff, the stuff worth talking about, is everything surrounding it. Namely, the governor of Virginia, who tried to gin up fear and paranoia about this rally, and when the, the fear-mongering was proven to be baseless, he tried to take credit for the fact that it was peaceful. So yesterday after, after the rally, Northam put out a statement saying, quote, we are all thankful that today passed without incident. The team successfully de-escalated what could have been a volatile situation. I will continue to listen to the voices of Virginians and will do everything in my power to keep our commonwealth safe. Yeah, I really love that. This is great. This is, I, I'm going to do this from now on. Whenever I go somewhere and it, there's no violence, I'm going to take credit for de-escalating. So, you know, I just got back from Kroger, got the toilet paper we needed. Don't worry. Everything stayed calm. Nobody was hurt. I was able to successfully de-escalate the situation. Don't worry. Um, no, that's... He says it was a potentially volatile situation. Now, I wasn't there, but I did follow it pretty closely on social media. Um, I saw plenty of uh, footage of the event. I didn't see anything that looked even remotely volatile. I didn't, it just, what I saw were, were people uh, mostly cheerfully making their voice heard, getting their point across about gun rights. Uh, there was chanting and singing. They said the Pledge of Allegiance, which was very upsetting for some leftists on Twitter, it turns out. But I didn't see anything volatile. I didn't see anything. I didn't even see anything that looked like it almost could have turned violent. But all of this would be more funny, I suppose, if it weren't for the corruption involved here. The governor of Virginia, Northam, he of uh, blackface and infanticide fame, as I said, declared a state of emergency leading up to the rally, even though there's no apparent reason for it. Here's what he said in part uh, when he declared the state of emergency last week. He said, um, the anticipated effects of the potential convergence of tens of thousands of demonstrators on Capitol Square, 
some of whom may not come to assemble peacefully, constitutes an emergency as described in uh, the Code of Virginia. Therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution of Virginia, uh, so on and so forth, I proclaim that a state of emergency will exist starting on January 17th through January 21st. Okay, some of whom may not have come to, to assemble peacefully. Did he have any credible intelligence that there were people coming who weren't going to be peaceful? Did he, did he have anything other than a prejudice against gun owners? If he had no such intelligence, then he just declared a state of emergency as a political tool to gin up fear towards a group of citizens who are exercising the First Amendment right. Unless you're going to tell me that every time there's a protest, he declares a, a state of emergency because who knows, maybe some of them won't be peaceful, which is true in general. I mean, every single day, you, you know, people come to the capital of Virginia and for all you know, some of them might not be peaceful. So why not declare a state of emergency every single day? Um, if you're declaring a, declaring a state of emergency, it should be for a specific reason, like a specific threat, uh, a credible threat that you received. If there was, again, if there was no such threat, if there's no credible specific reason for declaring a state of emergency, then this is a, a scandal. This is an abuse of power far worse than anything Trump has done in office. Now, of course, we know that Northam is never held accountable for anything he says or does. This guy is like, we talk about Teflon Don, Teflon uh, uh, Donald Trump, but th this guy's Teflon too. You got blackface infanticide, gets reelected, and now we know that this isn't going to hurt him either. But if we had a real media, if we had a real news media, they would demand that the governor of Virginia release whatever intelligence, whatever threats he supposedly had. You know, whatever, whatever justifies the state of emergency that he declared, he should release. And if he can't, um, or he doesn't, then we're going to know that this was the, there was either no reason for it, or there was very flimsy reason. And the real reason underlying all of that is just that it's just, it's very obvious. He's trying to make people afraid. He wants you to think that when a bunch of uh, gun owners get together, well, it's an emergency. You know, it's a powder keg, and we're just on the verge of, of chaos every moment. But to be declaring a state of emergency officially for that reason is, again, a, an enormous abuse of power. Speaking of power, um, switching gears here, here's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking recently at some kind of event. And she, had a, she made an interesting, I think, admission. Listen to this. To be ethical, if you're a billionaire today, the thing that you need to do is give up control mm. and power. So I don't want your money as much as we want your power. Mm. The people, not me, that's going to get cut and clipped. Yes, uh, yes, it will, AOC. Yes, yes, it will. It, it will get cut and clipped. We want your power, she says which is one of the most horrifically honest things we've heard from a politician in quite some time. It's always, we say we want politicians to be honest, and I, I want them to be honest, but it, it, it's always horrifying when they are, because then you hear stuff like that. And yeah, fine, she corrects herself and says, no, 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 not me, I don't want your power. Fine, all right, I'll, I'll let her correct herself. We don't want to jump on someone's case for a slip of the tongue. But 
What actually does she mean when she says we? Who is we? You know, she says, well, she, she says the people. She's referring to the people. All right, well, what do you mean by the people? Are the people a monolith that can be given power, whatever that means? Can you take power from one individual person and then give it to the people? Well, we know from past experience that generally when Democrats, especially socialists, talk about, not that there's much difference between the two anymore, when they talk about the people, what they mean is the government, the state. So she's saying that she wants the power of billionaires, not just, not just the money, but the power to go to the people. But what that means, what we know that means is the government. So when she said we, she really did mean herself because she's a part of the government. She's an agent of the state. And I think this brings up an important point, which is, which is this. Um, all of this demonizing of the wealthy, all of this stuff about taking money from the wealthy, uh, taking power from them. Well, okay, but when you advocate for that, you're advocating that the government get bigger and stronger and more powerful. And this is something I, you know, I wish especially Democrat voters would be able to understand that you as a peon, me as a peon, we remain peons in both scenarios. So whether billionaires have all that money and power or the government takes it, either way, you know, we're, we're still the peasants in the situation, unfortunately. I don't like it, but that's, that's the reality. Um, AOC and, and Bernie and her ilk, they aren't gonna make, they're not going to make us any richer or us any more powerful than we already are or aren't. Uh, they're talking about this for themselves. You know, this is something they benefit from. It's like we talked about last week with the student loan, uh, and this week too, I think, the so-called student loan forgiveness. And we talked about how it's not really forgiveness, it's transfer. You're taking the, the debt, student loan debt, and you're transferring it from the people who took out the loan, and it would seem, you know, by all rights, should be the ones to pay back, and you're transferring that debt to somebody else. And by Elizabeth Warren's plan and, and Bernie Sanders' plan, it's going to be those dreaded uh, billionaires and millionaires again. So it's really a transfer. And with this, with what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is talking about, it, again, it's a transfer. It's not, it's not taking away the wealth or the, and the power from billionaires. It's transferring it from billionaires to herself and the government. And if you think you're going to be any better off with the government being more powerful than it is, then I think you just haven't been paying very close attention. Um, before we move on, I want to tell you about something that we're doing over here at The Daily Wire that's really important. If you're a regular listener, you have, of course, heard me talk about pro-life issues and my unwavering position on pro-life issues. Uh, and, and the reason why I focus on it so much is that, you know, since Roe v. Wade passed, over 60 million unborn children have been killed in the womb. 60 million. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a number so large that it's hard for us to conceptualize but 60 million people we're talking about. And last year, uh, the left went even further off the cliff, passing the New York state law that allows abortion up to birth. There was a law in Illinois that would allow par partial birth abortion, which is an utterly barbaric procedure. 
And to make matters more intense, pro-life advocates are actively being targeted by the pro-abortion left. Uh, when Ben Shapiro spoke of the March for Life last year, our advertisers were targeted by the left, and uh, several of them pulled their ads from the program because of it. This was not the first time. It's not going to be the last time that we are attacked in an attempt to shut down pro-life voices. We're also not the only targets, of course. Pro live action is one of the biggest voices in the pro-life movement. I'm a big fan of live action's work. I have been for a long time. Um, they do some of the most important work in the pro-life movement, whether it's raising awareness and education on the abortion issue, uh, undercover videos that expose Planned Parenthood. That, that was my first, I think a lot of people, that was their first introduction to live action's work several years ago when they were doing these undercover videos. Um, and they were one of the first groups to go in and, and do these undercover videos of Planned Parenthood. So, um, and they're paying the price for it. They've been banned from advertising on Twitter. Uh, they have seen their advertising efforts and their online distribution restricted on, on several platforms across the internet because of the work they do. That is why our dailywire.com members are really important. Your membership helps us say no to advertisers who you know, cave to left-wing ideologies. If there are advertisers that uh, are going to cave or going to try to control what we talk about, whether it's on this show or any other show, uh, with with your support, you know it's 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 easy for us to say we don't need them. We keep our pro life message from being you keep our pro life message, I should say, from being from being canceled, and instead it grows even louder. That's why from now until January thirty first, a portion of any DailyWire.com membership will be donated to Live Action with promo code Live Action. Uh, that's of course L I V E A C T I O N Live Action to support awareness and education around the world on this issue. So join dailywire.com and make your pro-life voice heard. Okay, one other thing, um, one other thing to mention before we read some emails. I happened across this on Twitter. Someone posted a screenshot of a, of a tweet. Um, don't know who, who posted this originally. It doesn't really matter. It's more the, uh, the sentiment that I want to address, a common sentiment. And so this tweet says, male privilege is wearing the same outfit multiple times to events while girls can't wear the same dress twice, no matter how cute it is. Okay, so uh, that was the, the tweet, talking about male privilege and the, the, the you know, the, the, you hear this kind of thing a lot. It's related to the unrealistic beauty standards that women deal with, all the supposed pressure on them to be stylish and trendy and all that, et cetera, and so forth. Here's my point. Um, I want to say this, maybe for the benefit of some female listeners, if they weren't aware, and my message is this. As men, you know, we don't care one bit at all, really, how stylish your clothes are. We don't care about you being trendy and stylish. We don't need you to wear a bunch of makeup, right? I mean, the makeup industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. So women are spending lots of money on makeup. And I guess a lot of women feel like they, you know, feel pressure, like they have to put a lot of makeup on before they leave the house. You're not doing that for us because we really, we don't need that. We don't care. And I really am speaking for all men when I say, I think I can speak for, you know, maybe there are a few outliers, but I can speak for almost all men. In fact, we would actually prefer it if, if you cared less than you do about, uh, about what you wear. So my point is, but you can care however much you want to care. It's up to you. My, I'm just 
My point is the pressure that you feel, it's not from us. You know, it's from you guys. That's pressure you're putting on each other. So there's this, this thing that I've noticed of uh, in this culture of women putting pressure on each other to act a certain way or do a certain thing or buy a certain product or dress a certain way, putting pressure on each other and then blaming men for the stress that their own self-imposed rule causes them. Meanwhile, we're over here like, we don't care if you do that or not. It's like, don't, don't, don't look at us. I mean, uh, this is w- w- women who, who, who are you know, very focused on, on how they look when they go out in public. Uh, maybe for the men get, end up getting blamed for it. So I guess at some level, their women feel like they're doing it for men. But I also feel like they must know that really they're doing it for each other. They're not really doing it for us. Because, as I said, we don't notice and we don't care. And the reason why, so it's not male privilege. Yeah, a man, um, I guess, now, I, I mean, a woman who feels like, what, she, she can't wear the same outfit twice ever? I mean, that seems pretty extreme. That's going to get very expensive. But it is true that men, you know, as men, like, you know, I, I, we, we're, we're, we don't have much compunction about wearing the same outfit multiple times. Just, we're not worried about it. We don't have that stress. But it, if, if that's a privilege that we have, it's a privilege that is available to you as well. It's just we've, we've taken advantage of that privilege because we just don't care about it. And we're not looking at each other and judging each other for that. Now, you know, I mean, I, I could be around a guy every day for two weeks and he could wear the same outfit every single day. And it would, it would probably take me about seven or eight days before I noticed he, he could get away with seven or eight days of wearing the exact same outfit. And I probably wouldn't notice after a while I might. And then when I do, I might start putting it together and say, wait a second, I don't think I've seen him wear anything but that now that you mention it. And then once I notice it, yeah, I'm going to make fun of him because it's my, it's my duty as a man to make fun of him for that. But it's not a big deal. And we just laugh about it. And uh, I don't think he goes home and, and cries in his bathroom that he got made fun of. I think it's just he understands that okay, he's been wearing the same outfit and so he's going to get made fun of for it. It's fine. It's just what men do. Um, my point is that as women, I mean, you could have the same approach if you wanted to. So I just, I wouldn't, I, I think there are a lot of things. And it's not just this. There's a lot of uh, pressure that women feel in society. A lot of uh oppression that they might feel that again gets blamed on men but I think really comes mostly from themselves from other women another example would be in the workplace uh, I, I always this is one of the one of the uh, common tropes that you hear from feminists is on top of the unrealistic unrealistic beauty standards which again are almost entirely made by women for women those, those beauty standards. But another common trope is uh, this thing you hear about in the workplace where women feel, uh, you know, uh, hostility if, if they speak too much and they get talked over a lot. That's a big thing that you hear. It's a trope that women are getting talked over in the workplace. And every time I hear that, I think, I mean, I don't doubt that you get talked over, but is it really by men doing that? Women, they've done studies on this, and women, on average, they say like 20,000 more words a day than men. They, they do a lot, or no, maybe it's 20,000 words total. That'd be a lot of words. 
Uh, but they, women use, speak a lot more than men. They're much more verbal than men are. So most of the time, what I notice, you know, whether it's in a work environment or socially, yeah, people get talked over, but it seems to me that the people who do the talking over more often are women just because they have more to say. So they've, they've just got more words they have to get out in a day, and so they're going to end up trampling over each other in the talking. Whereas men, I mean, me, I could go, I could go six days and say nothing, if it were up to me. Now, doing this job, it's kind of hard. But if I didn't, you know, if I was living in a cave or something by myself and I had no one to talk to, I'd be fine. I, don't, I, I, could, I could go indefinite amount of time and say nothing, honestly. Um, I think a lot of men are like that. Now, there are talkative men. But a really talkative man, you notice. Like if you if you if you if you if you encounter a really talkative man, you think, wow, this guy doesn't shut up. You really you really notice it because it's not usually it's not common for men. Whereas women are more talkative, which is fine. But again, that's so if you're getting talked over, you feel like you can't get a word in edgewise. Probably it's because of other women that are doing that to you. It's probably not men. So I'm not saying that um, you know men can be jerks and and they can be judgmental and all those things as well. But I think we need to stop and reassess the, the, the uh, obstacles that women face, especially socially. We need to stop and reassess and, and see how much of that actually is coming from the patriarchy, from men, and how much of it is, actually, is, is coming from, you know, from inside the house, as it were, inside the, the, the female house. I think a lot of it is, is imposed on women by women. All right. Um, Let's move on to emails. Show at gmail.com is email address. From Andrew, I had some questions yesterday about Star Wars, and so I got a lot of emails, uh, which I appreciate, from Star Wars fans um, answering my questions. This is one from Andrew. says, let's start with the helmet thing. First, I'd like to point out that uh, I made the point that only in, in Star Wars, I couldn't figure out why only the bad guys wear cool helmets and masks. And I, I said maybe that's why people go to the dark side is because they want to wear the cool costumes and all the cool costumes are with the bad guys for some reason. Andrew says, let's start with the helmet thing first. I'd like to point out that good guy characters have cool helmets. In episode six, Leia gets a sweet bounty hunter helmet. In episode two and three, the clone trooper follow the same customs as the stormtroopers and wear their sweet helmets all the time. Now, the reason Darth Vader wears a helmet is because he has to. His head is permanently disfigured and isn't even functioning properly anymore. Well, he doesn't have to, right? It's, it's, it's more of a, a vanity thing. He just doesn't want people to see his disfigured head, which I don't get that either because if you're a bad guy, you're, you're a super arch villain. If there's any time you can get away with having a disfigured, disgusting, scarred face, it's when you're a supervillain. So if you're a supervillain, just embrace it. Um... Kylo Ren has a cool helmet in, in canon because he idolizes Vader and wants to be like him. In the real world, J.J. Abrams wanted to mirror Star Wars 4 with Star Wars 7, so he created a character with a cool helmet to be the antagonist. Well, he certainly succeeded in that because Star Wars 7 is just it's, it's just a, basically a shot-for-shot shot remake of other Star Wars films. Next, I need to touch on this. It is such a common mistake. When they say they're jumping to light speed, they're really entering another dimension in which, the, in which the space is compressed. They calculate their route and exit elsewhere. If they couldn't do this, it would still take decades to travel across the galaxy. 
And lastly, the lightsaber thing. First, let me start by saying that some of the characters thought of this too, such as the leader of Death Watch from Star Wars The Clone Wars, Ezra from Star Wars Rebels. I don't even know what these are. That I'm, and even Luke has a blaster and a lightsaber in Episode 5. Finn in the Battle of the Forest Planet, on the Forest Planet, even wishes he had a, a blaster. He fights with a lightsaber against the Stormtrooper with the riot control axe because the Stormtrooper wanted to make it personal. The reason that Force users don't fight with blasters is for two reasons. One, while the lasers fly slowly, in Episode 2, we see Jedi reflecting lasers in a chaotic battle scene. They have a sense that allows them to block and deflect the lasers. This gives them lasers whenever their opponent does. Additionally, they have better ranged offensive abilities, that being Force telekinesis. They do not use it on each other because they cancel each other out. And lastly, they use lightsabers because it is Jedi tradition and it's been going on since early times. Okay, Andrew. Your, your answer on the helmet was sufficient. That's fine. I'll accept it. I still think the good guys could do more with the costumes. Um, they could do themselves some favor, a favor by, you know, uh, adopting not just helmets, but even capes. In Star Wars, a lot of the bad guys walk around in capes <laughs> for some reason. And, uh, and you know, I, but so if you're going to do that, I mean, if people can, if, if, in the Star Wars world, if you can get away with wearing a cape and people don't make fun of you for it, it seems like in the real world, if you saw a guy come out with a cape and say, what are you wearing a cape for? But if you can do that, then I don't, I don't see why the, the good guys don't do it too. As far as, the, uh, as, as, far as the, the ships jumping into another dimension instead of going into light speed, okay, fine. But again, that still requires advanced technology, obviously. And this is a galaxy where such technology, you got a ship that can jump into another dimension and travel across the galaxy in an instant. And this, this, uh, this, this ship was sitting in a junkyard. That's how common this technology is which brings us to the lightsaber bit. And I feel like you haven't answered my challenge, which is that um, in a world with this kind of technology, it should be extremely easy to come up with a weapon, a personal weapon, like a type of gun that could, that could defeat a dude holding a lightsaber. Like I said, the only reason the laser guns don't work is because the lasers move so slowly. But if you just came up with a regular, with a, with a gun that shoots lasers at a faster speed, or even you just use a regular gun with, with lead bullets and that travel at a regular bullet speed, then no Jedi in the galaxy would be able to move fast enough to deflect all those bullets. So I could see using lightsabers in a ceremonial way if it's part of your, your tradition and your culture, but to actually use it in battle given the kind of technology that exists in this world, doesn't make any sense. It's like if, um, it'd be like if Japanese soldiers still used samurai swords in battle. Now, they might use them ceremonially, but they're not going to actually go in, in, into battle in modern times with a sword. Um, and by the way, going back to the technology bit, here's another thing that bothers me. C-3PO is a, apparently a conscious, sentient robot. I mean, it's extremely advanced. If C-3PO had existed in this world, he would be, I mean, easily, far and away, the most advanced piece of technology, the, the most advanced piece of equipment in the world. I mean, not even close. Uh, the operating system that C-3PO is using is, is just beyond anything we can imagine because it is capable of human thought. And yet... He's, he's externally, he's like the Tin Man. So he's got the external build of like a robot that maybe Toyota would have come up with in 1992. But then internally, 
his uh, his 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 operating system is way it's like thousands of years in in the future. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, if you have the technology to make a robot like that, why wouldn't you make him? Why make him useless physically? Uh, it would be like if I had the most advanced engine anyone's ever made, and I put it in Fred Flintstone's car. It doesn't make any sense. So that's a problem. This is from Seth says, Matt, you talked last week about social media and how much damage it does and the compulsion you feel towards it. I have a very strong compulsion. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I'm probably on social media six or seven hours a day. I don't even like it that much. I just feel drawn to pick up my phone and scroll mindlessly. My question is, why do we do this? Why are people so obsessed with social media? Why are we on it all the time when it doesn't even make us happy? What's the reason? Um, so I was thinking about this yesterday, Seth, after I read your email, and, and, and the easiest answer is to say that social media is an addiction. But that doesn't really clarify anything. You just chalk something up to an addiction and say, oh, it's an addiction. It doesn't clarify it. And also, I think it's not really true. I think we, we talk about a social media addiction. I think we mean it in a sort of colloquial way, but I don't see how using social media could really be a clinical addiction. Now, you might find in the medical community, they, in psychiatrists, and they, they maybe will pretend it's a real addiction, but I don't think. I, I think you've got to draw a real distinction between, say, heroin addiction and the compulsion you feel to use heroin and the compulsion you feel to get on Twitter. I just don't think they're in the same universe or same ballpark. Um, so I don't think that answers it. I think part of what draws us to mindlessly scroll the internet, uh, social media. Same thing that draws us to mindlessly binge Netflix and watch TV all the time and so on and so on. Um, watch reality TV and all this stuff. I think it's that we fear, um, we fear thought, you know. We don't want to think. We don't want to contemplate things too seriously or too deeply. Um, we don't want to dwell on anything very serious. Uh, we certainly don't want to think about our mortality, about death, um, about about the our basic human condition. So I, I am becoming increasingly convinced that so much of our culture, so much of what we do, is at some level driven by our desire to prevent ourselves from thinking. We're trying to prevent ourselves from thinking, and I, I think that's what explains so much of what we do in this culture. It's a defense mechanism. We do all of this, and we entertain ourselves relentlessly, almost obsessively, because it stops us from thinking. We, we are very troubled by thought. And it seems that we'd rather not have very many of them, very many thoughts, that is. I think we, in general, are becoming very frivolous people. That's what you find in the culture, but especially in the internet, in internet culture frivolity and irony and cynicism. We obsess over dumb things, irrelevant things. We're always ironic about everything and cynical about everything. And I know it's kind of hypocritical for me to be complaining about that of all people. But again, it's, it's hard for me not to see that as, at least at some level, a defense mechanism, a way to deny, to turn our heads from the really serious business of living and thinking and being. Uh, I mean, think about this. Speaking of thinking, prior to, prior to modern media, um, 
so, you know, I'm talking about prior to internet, TV, radio even. So for, I don't know, the first 10,000 years, give or take, of human civilization, there was, there was none of that. Nothing to listen to. Nothing to watch or scroll through in terms of media. None of that existed. So what did people do? You ever thought about that? What did they do? Well, they, they worked. Okay, they worked a lot. They toiled and they worked fine. And that was a lot of their day. And maybe they read, although um, if you go back far enough, literacy was uh, pretty uncommon and, and, and they didn't have the same access. And you go all the way back to before the printing press, they didn't, you know, people didn't have access to books unless you were a monk or a, uh, you know, someone in the elite class. So maybe you read, maybe you did some reading. Um, and, uh, but what else, what else do they do with their free time at the end of the day? You got your work done for the day. It's not time for bed yet. What are you doing? I'm sure they talked to each other. I'm sure they spent time as a family. They played games and so on. But the point I'm getting to here is that there was probably time. There was probably lots of time cumulatively where um, they sat there and didn't do anything. There was probably a fair amount of sitting silently and doing nothing. That was probably a relatively normal part of human existence for thousands of years. Where there'd be times in the day when, you know, you, there was nothing really to do. So you sat there and, you know, maybe you just did nothing. Maybe not for, not for six hours, but there would be time in the day. Because you didn't have a phone to pull out and distract yourself. You didn't have a TV to turn on. And you're sitting on you know, a piece of furniture in your living room and you're just sitting there. Thinking. Now, when was the last time that you did that? When was the last time that you sat somewhere, no phone, no TV, not talking to anybody, not doing anything, not flipping through a magazine, nothing? You just sat there and you thought. When's the last time you did that? I bet for a lot of us, it's been like years since we've done that. And in the times when we feel like we're forced to, to do it, we, we panic. Like, have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're in a waiting room and uh, there's no good magazines to read and your phone is dead and they don't have a TV and you're sitting there waiting for the dentist to call you back and you've got nothing to do and, and you know, you've got your phone in your hand and you feel this compulsion to look at it, but it's dead. It, it, it creates a real sense of almost like panic, like you've been disconnected from something. And the idea that all you can do is simply sit there is, is overwhelming. We're really uncomfortable with it. And why are we uncomfortable with it? The only explanation I can come up with is that uh, it, it, it allows for a lot of unadulterated, unfiltered thinking. And we don't like that. Uh, we're afraid of our own thoughts. Uh, so that, I, I think that's, that's part of it. Maybe we've even forgotten how to think in some ways because we've outsourced our thinking to the internet. We let the internet think for us. I mean, we let the internet literally complete our sentences for us. All right, um, from Lee says, hi Matt, love the show. Wanted to know how you feel about reincarnation. If you believe in the afterlife, why do you rule out the possibility of reincarnation? Billions of people believe that we will be reincarnated after death. Do you think this is possible or have you ruled it out? If so, why? 
Uh, well, first of all, it's not up to me to rule anything out, per se. Uh, I mean, when we die, whatever happens, happens. So I can't rule it out or rule it in. It, it is what it is. Now, as far as what I think about it, well, in a certain sense, yeah, we are reincarnated. In the sense that our bodies are made up of atoms, 7 billion, billion, billion atoms, to be precise, or sort of precise. Um, and when we die, those atoms don't die with us. They are recycled back into the world, and they become other things. Uh, just like the atoms in our body right now were other things. And, and if you trace it back far enough, um, our, our, you know, as Carl Sagan talks about, we are the stuff of stars. We are literally stardust. We were made from stars. Um, and we are, in a sense, you might say, reincarnated stars. So if, if you want to look at it physically, at the atomic level, then, okay, I, I guess, I, I think it's weird to call that reincarnation, but I, you could make an, some sort of argument for that. But that's not what you mean by reincarnation. I assume reincarnation means, when you bring, talk about it, it means some mysterious, mystical way that your actual essence, your being, you as a person, continue to live on in another form uh, after this form dies, right? That's what you mean. Now, to me, that's disqualified on a logical basis. I don't even need to get anything else. I, I think it's just, it doesn't make any logical sense, and I'll explain why. Because if, if reincarnation is true, then I right now am just the latest version of myself. I had other selves before this one. And those other selves screwed up so badly that they got sent back to earth in my body, those poor bastards. Uh, but what does that mean? If I had other selves, yet those other selves had different physical forms, different personalities, different experiences, different beliefs and different everything, different family, different everything, and I can't remember those past selves, and thus I don't have any of their memories, then in what sense exactly are we the same? Exactly in what sense am I that past self? It doesn't even mean anything. I'm a completely different person with a whole new set of experiences and everything. Where is the continuity? And, and, and what exactly would be, the, I guess this is really the point, what exactly would be the difference between me dying and being obliterated and me dying and coming back, quote unquote, as an entirely new person with no memory of my past experiences? Isn't it the same thing as obliteration? I mean, think about even if you, let, let's, let's, let's even make it less extreme. Let's say that uh, there was a, you know, some sort of technology where you, where uh, they're able to, uh, you know, obliterate your mind and implant a new mind into 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 your body somehow. Let's say that technology existed. Um, you know, no memory anymore of your past self. Completely new personality. Completely new everything. Although you still have the same body. Isn't that the same effect? Like leading up to that, you know, as, as you're waiting for yourself to be obliterated and, and have this new self implanted in with this crazy technology, that past self, isn't that the same thing as, as death, basically? Now, if you were to consider that your body is obliterated too, and now you have a new mind and a new body, then it's okay. That's just, I, I don't even see how we could call that reincarnation. 
so that's that's my my issue with it. Uh, I just I don't see the difference. You know, I know there are people who claim, oh, I have memories of my past self. First of all, no, you don't. But uh, second of all, uh, not enough of a memory to, to, for there to be any continuity uh, so that, it, again, it just ends up being the same thing, effectively, as there being no reincarnation at all. All right, um, that's how I feel about reincarnation. It will leave on that note. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, Technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Donovan Fowler, audio mixer Robin Fenderson. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there. Mm-hmm. 